So, Luke 13, verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go and tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now let's pray and then I'll make a few short comments about that text. Lord God, as we see Jesus' heart today, please may his love um, warm our hearts. And please may we be convicted of our stubbornness and the way that we constantly resist you. It's been a problem of humanity throughout history that we have resisted your will. And Lord God, may we be repentant this evening and trust in you. Amen. So let's search our hearts and ask if this first character might reflect us. Do we think we know best? Here's the second character, Herod. Herod probably wanted to kill Jesus because he saw Jesus as a troublemaker and possibly a rival to power. Now this is actually a different King Herod to the one who tried to kill Jesus at his birth. That was Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. So Herod thought he was protecting his own interests and God had nothing to do with it. And all the while he was trying to kill God's chosen savior of the world. So this is the sort of person who goes about their own business without giving God a second thought and thinking, you know, God has nothing to do with this. I'm just going about my own business. And yet, by pursuing their agenda, they actually set themselves up against God. So, let's uh, search our hearts and ask if that might be us. They're the sorts of people who just go about our own business and protect our own interests. And finally, the third character, this isn't really a character, but Jerusalem. Jerusalem takes on a bit of a symbolic meaning in our reading. Because Jesus says, uh, in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. And then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Now when Jesus said, no prophet can die outside Jerusalem, he wasn't stating a fact, because prophets did die outside Jerusalem. He's making a rhetorical point. Just like a rhetorical question doesn't need an answer, this isn't stating a fact. What he's saying is, Jerusalem represents God's people. And it's God's own people who reject God's messengers, often violently. Listen to what this writer says about it. Herod must not be greedy, for Jerusalem has first claim on the blood of God's messengers. So Jesus is bringing out the bitter irony that the closer God comes to people, 
the more, pe the more hatred those people have for him. And the, the more violently they react to people who are sent by God to them. So this is the kind of person who knows the Bible well. Perhaps they've been to church for years. Maybe they live a comfortable life by God's grace. And yet, they're disgusted by what they read in the Bible. They consider the church only worthy of contempt and scorn. And they're smug and condescending when God's leaders fail or fall. So let's search our hearts to see if that might be us. Because when Jesus brings all of these messages, he's talking to Israel. He's talking to God's own people. And so some of Jesus' harshest criticism comes straight into the church and to people who have been the recipients of God's love and his grace. Because our hearts are so set on disobeying God and rebelling against him. So in conclusion, the great doctor knew that he was going to give up his life to save his people from the, their sins. And he longed that people, uh, he longed to hear that simple welcome from his people. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, they, and us at times today, make, made their enemies, uh, made themselves enemies of God. So the human heart is in complete opposition to God and his plans. And that's why Jesus has to be so firm in his teaching, because nothing else will rouse us from our rebellion. Now we're going to respond in prayer to that passage. And let me start by reading Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. And then I'm going to read a prayer that was uh, written in 1549 by the reformer Thomas Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury and a great influence for good in this country in his time. And I've modernized it slightly, but otherwise it's the original. So this is Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Let, let's pray together. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all people, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous to us. The burden of, burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past. And grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So that's where we are in Luke, and I hope that helps you as we go through the series, just follow through the, the um, pattern of Jesus' teaching. Now, we're going to look at demons and the spirit world tonight. Um, it's a big subject, and there's no way we'll be able to cover everything. Uh, we could actually do an entire term on what Jesus and the Bible teach about the spirit world and 
you know, during that we could dip into how the Christian church over time has uh, veered off into speculation and how actually some of that speculation forms some of the opinions we have today about angels, demons, Satan and so on. But we're not going to have time to do it all. We're going to concentrate on demons because we don't talk about them very often and yet Jesus always seems to be bumping into them. Our reading this evening says, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. So what's that all about? And we'll be talking about questions like, what should our response be to the Bible's teaching about demons? Does demon possession happen today? And what about people in the New Testament who seem to have uh, neurological conditions and yet are described as demon-possessed? What are we to make of that? Now, I want to start with a warning, which is that some of you will be too interested in this session and this subject. Um, In both Colossians and in Hebrews, people had already drifted into worshipping angels, and they're told off for it. So, remember what we've already seen about our hearts and our propensity to find something else to worship that isn't God. And if the spirit world interests you, as it does interest me, and I have to watch my own heart, we need to be careful. But equally, some of you might not be interested enough in this session and this subject. The Bible talks about demons in the spirit world a lot, so it is something that God wants us to know about, at least a little bit about. And there must be a reason why he wants us to know a little bit about it. So let's turn to the Bible. First of all, what does the Old Testament have to say about demons? The answer is hardly anything. Um, it does uh, have different words for demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits. These are all seem to be referring to the same thing. But the fact that the Old Testament tells us basically nothing about demons or evil spirits is in itself a lesson. It's secondary in importance, isn't it? And we all know that. There are basically only six uses of words that mean anything like demon in the Old Testament. And two of those could be poetic rather than about anything in real life. So that leaves us with four key verses, which I'm going to put on the screen. Here we go. This is the first Hebrew word, sa'ir or sata or sata if you're American. This is a sata here. There we go, a kind of uh, goat, well, um, goat-like idol is how it's described in most of the lexicons. Uh, Here's one of the verses, Leviticus 17.7. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols, that word there. And then 2 Chronicles 11.15. He, that is Jeroboam, appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat and calf idols he had made. So there we go, two references to demons in the Old Testament. Here's another word, the word shed. That's a nice, easy one to remember. There's a demon in my shed. The Hebrew word shed, and that's used in Deuteronomy 32 verse 17. They sacrificed to false gods, demons, which are not God. And Psalm 106, verse 37. They sacrificed, and this gets pretty serious, doesn't it? They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons, to false gods. The word shed there. Now there could also be a reference to a demon in the scapegoat of Leviticus. Um, Leviticus 16, verse 8 says he is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Now that word scapegoat, if you've got 
Um, the NIV it has a little footnote to say that the meaning of that word isn't certain. And it's the Hebrew word Azazel, which could possibly mean strong God, from the word Azaz to be strong, and the word El meaning God. Now that's kind of a talk in itself, because obviously that affects the whole way we see the atonement. So I think what we'll do is we'll save that one for when we're in the middle of Leviticus and we're looking at the Day of Atonement, and then perhaps we can revisit that particular instance. But let's think about those other two references, um, Sa'ir and Shed. And really, all we learn from those verses is that these are things that are the object of people's worship. But it doesn't tell us whether they're real, or whether they're symbolic, or mythical, or whether there's any power in them. But let's look at the New Testament. Because when we get to the New Testament, we find out that there is some kind of being behind these false gods. There is some kind of power there. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that an idol is nothing. It's just a bit of wood or a bit of stone. But there is a power behind that idol which he says is demonic. So this is 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now why would he say that unless there was something there? Some sort of power or being behind it. Now in the ancient world, when a person made an offering to a demon, uh, to an idol, sorry... Um, they knew that they weren't just making an offering to a piece of wood or stone. They knew that when they carved that piece of wood or stone, they would then bring an offering to invoke their God to come and possess that idol. Or at least this is what they believe. So when a person made an offering, they were effectively manipulating their God into coming into the idol and then granting them their wishes. If an idol had zero power then it wouldn't be worshipped. You know, people throughout history have not been fools. They have not just worshipped bits of wood and stone. They have really believed that behind that, there is a power. And if they invoke that power, then it is able to grant them their wishes. And this is one of the reasons why the second commandment stops the Israelites from making idols. Because God wants to make it clear that the Israelites cannot manipulate God into giving them their wishes. Um, you'll probably remember that time when Aaron made a golden calf. When he made the golden calf, it actually says, um, Aaron says something like, let's uh, now put on a sacrifice, a, a festival to the Lord using God's name. And yet he's just made a golden calf. So the calf, it seems, is this idol and they're using that to invoke God's presence, like bring God down when they sacrifice, so that they can then ask God to do things for them. It's manipulating God. And God is saying, I'm not like that. I don't want you to do that. But that's how it worked in the ancient world. So <clears throat> when we read of these people sacrificing their sons and daughters to, to demons, they are, they are literally sacrificing their sons and daughters to an idol um, into which they have called the presence of an evil spirit. Now, in the Gospels, oh, sorry, before I get on to that, <laughs> I think it's safe to say that um, although people thought they were manipulating their gods into the idols, I think it's safe to say that actually the demons were manipulating the people in all of this. You know, uh, 
Um, people thought, you know, they could do the rain dance and the rain would come. The demons are thinking, great, they're not worshipping the real God, they're worshipping us. So this is where it's going. And in the Gospels, we learn some more key things about demons. So I want us to have a discussion on our tables about one of the key episodes where Jesus bumps into a demon. It's in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. And I want you to discuss the very open-ended question, what do we learn about demons from this passage? So here we go, up on the screen, Mark 5, 1 to 13. Have a read of that on your tables and discuss what does it teach us about demons. Right, draw those conversations to a close. Okay. Oh, there's a good discussion going on over here. <laughs> Excellent. So you might have noticed the first thing is that this doesn't use the word demons, it uses the word impure spirit, and the two seem to be interchangeable. So in Matthew's account of the same thing, it uses the word demon. Okay, what have you noticed? Uh, just shout some things out. Superhuman strength, okay, yep. Yep, there's Jesus, definitely. Yeah, they're obsessed with death and destruction, definitely. Yes. Sorry? An earthbound spirit, yeah, interesting. Yeah, good thought. Causes illness, yep. Terrified of Jesus. Yeah. So at a really basic level, they seem to be personal, don't they? It's not just an evil force. This thing is speaking. So that's another thing. They can talk. They know who Jesus is. They seem to be out to cause misery. These are all things you've got. Um, I guess we kind of take it for granted because we're so familiar with the stories, but we shouldn't. They seem to be able to take over a person. And they cause that person to behave strangely, including this superhuman strength. That's weird, isn't it? They have no power in the presence of Jesus. They're afraid of him. That's good. Anything else from the end of the story? How it ends? Yeah. They wanted to go into pigs. That's weird, isn't it? So um, they can possess not just people, but other creatures as well and make them behave strangely. In fact, it almost seems like they need to possess something. They're, it's not enough for them just to be cast out. They want to be cast out into something else. So actually, because of that, we could say, if they're possessing one thing, then we know that they're finite. They're not like, God is infinite. He's just everywhere at once, at all time. Demons are not like that. They're in one place at one time, and they have to move from there to another place at another time. That's also good news for us. And uh, a weird one, they were worried about being sent out of the area. So um, let me just say a couple of things about three of those things that you've noticed. First of all, the misery they cause, and then I'll talk about why they want to be sent out of the area, uh, and then one final thing. So first of all, the misery they cause. And it's really good for us to notice the kind of suffering that demons cause, because the work of demons is presented as so opposite of the, uh, uh, the work that Christ came to achieve. So if we understand the sufferings that, Je that demons cause, we understand the salvation that, de that Je Jesus brings. Don't want to get those two uh, muddled up. So first of all, um, 
as uh, Robbie said, I think, in verse 3, the man lived in the tombs. He's, uh, there's an association with death there. And, of course, Jesus came to bring life. Again, the man lived in tombs. That separates him from everybody else. And Jesus came to bring people together, not to separate them. Verse 3 again, the man is chained, but from the inside, isn't he? Real chains can't hold him, but he's not free. He's completely trapped. And Jesus came to give us freedom, even from things which would trap us inside and destroy us. And in fact, particularly from that. Jesus sets us free from the chains inside of ourselves. Uh, verse 4, the demon-possessed man tore the chains. He's only got power to destroy, but he had a lot of that power. And Christ had the power to create. And he's done it once and will do it again in the new creation. Christ is a, a creator and demons are only destroyers. Verse 5, the demon-possessed man would cry out and cut himself. I think this is really telling because self-loathing and self-hatred self um, are, are associated with demon possession here. Now, some people think that Christianity is all about self-loathing because we're obsessed with sin and we're obsessed with beating ourselves up over how sinful we are. And yet, um, that's what the demons seem to be about. And Christ, instead, gives us his Holy Spirit and tells us to rejoice because our names are written in heaven and that our Heavenly Father will provide for our needs because he loves us and he cares for us, which is just so opposite, isn't it? Now, that doesn't mean to say that if somebody experiences self-loathing, they're demon-possessed or even being influenced by a demon. But it's good to, to notice the opposite here. Demons cause self-loathing and self-hatred, whereas Christ, um, yes, he says, repent of your sins, no doubt about that, but then he gives us all sorts of good things to praise God for. Um, many other demon-possessed individuals had connected illnesses as well. Uh, demons destroy and they make people sick, but Jesus came to heal and to make people whole. And uh, as I mentioned in an all-age talk a few weeks ago, Jesus gives us the hope of a resurrection body which is imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. A demon can offer none of those things. So that's looking at the misery they cause. The second thing I want to think about is why this comment about them being sent out of the area? Well, <laughs> the honest answer is we don't really know. But um, maybe being sent out of the area implies being sent to hell or destruction. Maybe it's just a kind of symbolic way of saying that. But it could be related to the fact that ancient false gods uh, were territorial. So if you were a king and you went in and defeated another uh, empire with another false god, then not only have you defeated that empire, but your false god has defeated their false god, and you've moved into that false god's territory. Now, it may be that that was just a, a superstition of the ancient people and has no bearing in reality, or maybe there's some truth in that. Maybe these false gods, these demons, were to a certain extent territorial. Now, <laughs> I suppose it's come down to us today in the idea of a haunted house, it's okay as long as you stay away from it. The evil is located in one place, or so the story goes. Now, I'm not commenting on the validity of that at all. I'm not sure. Uh, we don't want to speculate about it too much, but we are left with the biblical record telling us that the demons were afraid to be sent out of the area. And it is worth us asking the question, why? That's about as much as I can say on that. 
The final thing I want to say is um, some people think that demons were never really real, but Jesus was just using the popular myths of his time to make a point about his power. The problem with that is the Bible doesn't reflect the popular myths of his time very well. If Jesus was using the popular myths, he's got them wrong. And instead of that, he's treated the demons as if they are real. Now, there are lots of examples in the Bible of times when demons are treated as being real. There's two-way communication between Jesus and the demons in the presence of witnesses. Now, some of those witnesses were the apostles who went on to write the Gospels or went on to preach the good news about Jesus. And they wouldn't have recorded a two-way dialogue, I don't think, if Jesus was just using the myths of his time. Paul and others also saw demon possession in Philippi in Acts 16. And there's definitely no hint that Paul was accommodating himself to the myths of Philippi. You, you kind of got to pick and choose. You know, Philippi is a Greek, um, Greek town. It was a Roman colony and um, not a Jewish town. So which myths are we accommodating ourselves to? And uh, all of the gospel writers and Paul must have misunderstood Jesus if demons don't really exist which um, boils more down to a question of what you think about the Bible and how true the Bible is than whether or not demons exist. So if we're committed to the truth of the Bible, we have to say that demons are real things, real beings that have a personality, that do talk, that do possess people and other things, and that are active, an active force of evil. Let's think about demon possession. The first thing I want to say about demon possession is that it's basically unheard of in the, New, in the Old Testament. There's one possible exception in Saul. You remember that Saul was having a bad day and it says an evil spirit came from the Lord that troubled him. Now, the way that's, you'll notice that didn't use one of the words for demons that I put up at the beginning. And it could be that this evil spirit is just a kind of a troubled spirit from the Lord, a kind of form of depression. God sent him um, effectively, I mean, we don't want to credit God with evil, but God sent him a, a downcast spirit, a, a spirit of depression, um, because of his disobedience. Now, I think, again, um, with that text, we need to look at it in the context of the whole story, so maybe we'll come back to that when we look at 1 Samuel. But uh, in the New Testament, obviously, it appear, demons appear everywhere in the Gospels, and then they kind of gradually fizzle out. They're only mentioned a couple of times in Acts and never in the rest of the New Testament as, as kind of beings that are encountered day by day, although there are a couple of references. So in all of the letters about Christian doctrine and life, nobody ever says, this is the situation regarding demon possession and this is what you need to do about it. Which seems to su suggest that demon possession is a phenomenon which happened in a huge scale almost exclusively at the time of Jesus' ministry and was fizzling out shortly after that in the time of the apostles. It seems to be almost a kind of evil counter-offensive against God. God is just about to bring his master plan to fulfillment when Jesus lives, dies on the cross and rises from the dead. And evil is thinking, right, we better do something now or never. And floods the area with demons, and ironically, Jesus ends up turning that around and showing who he is and showing his power and showing his goodness and love and creativity through his encounters with these demons. And I think that's a real encouragement for all of us when we're suffering 
um, in times of trouble. Because even if we can't see it now, you know, evil, and I'm not saying demons particularly, but evil might be getting at us and bringing us down. And yet we know that God uses all these things for good. And perhaps we'll come to the new creation and see as clearly as we see with Jesus casting out demons how God turned that around completely and used those times for our good. So let's be encouraged by that. So that helps us to answer the question, should we expect to see demon possession today? I think the answer is probably not. I'm not ruling it out because a missionary called uh, John Nevius wrote a highly regarded book in 1892 called Demon Possession and Allied Themes, in which he defended the idea that missionaries still encounter demon possession when going into new areas, which makes sense. I mean, if uh, there was a lot of demonic activity when Christ came, then perhaps when Christ goes into a new area of the, of the earth and the gospel is preached somewhere where it hasn't been preached before, maybe we can expect to see a similar sort of thing. So I'm not ruling it out. And uh, 1892, of course, was moving towards the height of modernity, which is the kind of empiricism and uh, scientific rationality. So this wasn't some wacky medieval guy who just saw demons everywhere, like Martin Luther, who actually threw his ink pot at the devil for restraining him when he was writing or something like that. Um, this, is, this is someone who holds more or less the same kind of scientific views that we do today, and yet said there are plenty of examples where people have encountered demon possession. But in the UK today, evil has plenty of other ways of keeping us away from God and keeping us worshipping something else, doesn't it? It doesn't, I say it doesn't, evil doesn't, Satan doesn't, demons don't need to resort to demon possession because we've already got plenty of distractions from God. So I think it's very unlikely. Now I want to say a little bit about the connection between neurological disorders like epilepsy and demon possession. Because, I mean, without... Well, you, you know, do you remember the time where there was the boy who um, was experiencing seizures and kept getting thrown into the fire? And Jesus said it's a demon possession and cast out the demon. Now, um, without looking at that account and every other account in the New Testament, I think the best single verse we could go to about this is probably Matthew 4, 24. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Can you see the reason that's helpful? It mentions those who are demon-possessed, oh, and those who have seizures, but they're not the same thing. So that verse clearly understands that not everyone who was ill was demon-possessed. And more, more specifically, not everyone who was having seizures, a, um, a symptom typically associated with epilepsy and other neurological diseases, not everyone experiencing that was demon-possessed. Demon possession could lead to physical and mental health problems, but those same health problems exist completely separately to demon possession. So, these illnesses that we all experience from time to time, and you know, some people experience particular illnesses, and particularly badly, these we can say are part of um, the broken nature of this creation caused by sin and the fall and the curse, and need not necessarily be associated with 
demons or demon possession directly. Do you remember that um, in the baptism services, there are three things that we have to war against as Christians? The world, the flesh, and the devil. We don't want to associate everything with the devil, because some of it is the world and the flesh. And those things war against us as well. Equally, we don't just want to say it's all the world and the flesh, because some of it is the devil. But we've got three things to keep in mind there. I would probably go as far as saying that not a single neurological disorder or mental or physical health issue in the UK today is caused by demon possession. I might be wrong, but I think it's safer to go that way than to be constantly asking the question of whether or not somebody is demon possessed, when the answer is probably not. So, where are the demons today? What are they doing? And let's think about our response to the Bible's teaching about demons. Two points. First of all, people still worship false gods today. And the Bible teaches that false gods are demonic. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Revelation 9 20. The rest of mankind still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols. Oh, interesting. Kind of divided those two up there. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. So that should make us more alarmed by false teaching when we see it. Particularly by false claims of salvation. And things, setting, things or people setting themselves up in the place of God. Because, um, I mean, I was, I was thinking about this earlier actually. In this country we're very generous to people. We're very tolerant and we're very, um, we give people the benefit of the doubt. But I think it's dangerous when we think, oh that person's just mistaken. Or that person's slightly off the mark. Because the New Testament teaches us that there are active and relentless evil beings in the world who are trying to stop you from following Christ. And when they succeed, they will take and take and take until there's nothing left of you. False gods offer a little bit, they might give a little bit, but they consume you and torment you, as we've seen these demons doing in the, in the New Testament. They cannot give life and they cannot satisfy. And some people today, in this country, are worshipping demons and think they get something from it. We should run a mile from false teaching and counterfeit gods of any kind. But the second thing that we should keep in mind is that we shouldn't be afraid of them because Christ has defeated evil. 1 John 4 verses 3 and 4. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not uh, does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. You dear children are from God. And have overcome them. You remember Jesus sent out the 70 and gave them power over unclean spirits? Now that we live in the age that we live in, effectively all Christians have overcome evil spirits. We're not to be afraid of them at all. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, you cannot be demon possessed. And neither can a demon have any authority over you. This is what Martin Luther wrote in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Verse 3, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And in fact, 
Even though it's good to know what the Bible says about demons, demons should barely even feature in our thinking because we have much better things to think about. Again, the same 70 that Christ sent out with power over demons, they came out really excited. We've cast out demons and the demons are subject to us. And Jesus said to them, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's a much better thing to be thinking about. So, let me wrap all of this up and conclude. The God we serve is the God of life. And he has promised us eternal life in his presence. We rejoice because our names are written in heaven. And as we close, we're going to draw our attention away from demons, a horrible subject, onto God and praising God for who he is. And in the last verse of this uh, hymn, it's one of my favorite hymns, it talks about the angels adoring God. And I called this talk Demons in the Spirit World, but I misled you all a little bit, I'm afraid, because I haven't said anything about angels, haven't said anything about cherubim and seraphim, about Satan and whether demons are fallen angels or whether they're something else, which is not as straightforward a question as you might think. I haven't talked about Gabriel or Michael or the authorities, powers, dominions or thrones. I haven't talked about the elemental spiritual forces of Colossians 2 and other places, or even about spirits of the dead and where they might be, and the witch at Endor um, raising uh, Samuel from the dead to talk to Saul. There is a big spiritual world out there, maybe as diverse and full as this material universe. But all of it is created, and none of it compares in glory, majesty, and goodness with its creator. And let me just finish with one final thought. In all of this creation, all of the physical creation we see around us, maybe some of you have been watching Green Planet and seeing, once again, David Attenborough showing us how cool this world is. All of the beauty of this physical world, perhaps all of the unseen beauty of the spiritual world, that we only have glimpsed at. Only one thing in that entire creation is referred to as being created in the image of God. And that's us in this room. And other people, of course, not just us in this room. Humankind. Only we can experience God's salvation. The angels look at it from outside, and we're told in the New Testament, they are amazed and they wonder. But we experience it. We are uniquely privileged in all of creation, and God deserves all of our joyful praise and allegiance.